This is episode 621 of the Unmaking Sense series, and I think if my arithmetic is correct, it is also episode 200. So it represents something of a milestone or a watershed. And I'm pleased to say that I think I have something worthy of that landmark. Yesterday I recorded an episode in which I reflected on how sometimes my non-conscious brain doesn't seem to be producing anything of much interest. True to form, however, overnight since then it suddenly occurred to me, or I suppose I could say to it, at about 3am, that all the recent episodes of my podcast can be summed up in a single, all-encompassing insight that has, so to speak, been hiding in plain sight. I'll try to tell the story in the order in which it occurred to me. It began with a very striking visual image. When I sit on the veranda in my house and look at the garden, I imagine, as most of us, I suspect, imagine when we look at the world, that what I'm seeing This completion, in the words that we used before, is the basis for what will happen next. In other words, I make an assumption about a causal sequence of which this image, this impression of the world, this observation, is an ongoing part. As in a sense, the beginning of what comes later, even though it's a part of what has been carrying on for times before. I want to suggest that this is a mistake. This completion, like the leaves at the ends of the branches of the tree that I was talking about recently, is not causally related to its immediate neighbours at the same level. If I look at the leaves of a tree, they may appear to me in clusters like events that are causally related. But their relative position, their juxtaposition, is a superficial representation of their connectedness. What we think of as causal connections between one leaf and another, for example, are in fact not more than what David Hume brilliantly intuited as associations of ideas. I'll come back to Hume in a minute because from round about page 400 of my handwritten notes that have now reached page 729, I've been obsessing about David Hume's discussion of causality in his great work, A Treatise of Human Nature, and reflecting on the fact that he struggles again and again, he revisits the question over and over again without ever quite, as you might say, nailing what it is he's trying to say, but coming so tantalisingly close. And perhaps, if it's not pretentious to think so, we can now finish that story. Second illustration... When I make a cup of tea, the sequence of turning on the tap, 
filling the kettle, putting the kettle on a base with power, pressing a switch, watching it boil, putting tea into a teapot, adding boiling water, stirring it and letting it brew, all look like cause-effect relationships. And I'm suggesting, as Hume suggests, that they're not. They are much like, much more like, the independent leaves on the ends of the branches of a tree. Now, I can hear you protest, but hold on. You want to make a cup of tea, and you do these things in sequence, and therefore the intention to make the cup of tea is what drives one to the other, and so they do behave like a causal chain. I know, I think that too, in just the same way, that I think that when I look at the scene in my garden, it's the beginning, the departure point, for what comes next. And I'm suggesting, more than suggesting, I'm saying that it isn't. Bear with me. David Hume's insight about causality, namely that it was no more than an arbitrary consequence of habitual associations of ideas, exhibited his genius. Now, I don't use the word genius very often. It's more or less something I've made myself strike from my vocabulary. But in his case, and indeed generally, I think one way we can use the word, not to mean very clever or exceptionally clever, but someone who is sufficiently insightful and courageous and trusting of themselves to be ready to doubt what everyone else thinks obvious. And everyone else thinks that causal chains are obvious, and the most obvious of them all, which, which Hume specifically mentions, is the way a cue ball strikes an object ball in a game of billiards in a way that appears to be a kind of prototypical example of cause and effect. The ball strikes the other ball and it causes the other ball to move. And Hume says, and I am saying, this is a mistake. The fact that things are associated in our minds, even regularly associated in our minds, that matter, of course, relates to Hume's demolition of the argument from induction, but I'm not going to go there. The fact that they're associated means that we interpret their connections as cause and effect. But what really binds them together is something else. Something that is, you'll be, <laughs> you'll be surprised or tired of hearing, is related to the phenomenon that we observed with the omega number. To understand a cluster of leaves properly... We shouldn't see them in relation to one another, but as products of what is going on deeper down in both time and space at the nodes where the branches divide, at the knots where the branches enter other branches and the biggest branches enter the trunk of the tree and the tree is associated downwards, connected downwards 
to its roots. The real connections between the leaves are to do with their backwards related histories and the phenomena that arise from them. So the true causes of all these things, like the sequence of events that results in a, a pot of tea, lies in aspects of the past that we do not even notice when we perform our completions. Our completions, as when I sit on the veranda or switch on the kettle, make something of the world, but the real world is happening invisibly behind and beneath and before those observations in ways that will gradually emerge, will manifest themselves as new, supposedly causal sequences. Imagine, in other words, that the branches produce the leaves as a cluster, present the cluster as if it were causally related, but the real explanation lies much more deeply in the structure of the tree. The things that will give rise to what comes next are not part of our observational frame. They are not part of what we see. They are not part of the completions that we make. They are not part of the snapshots that we take when we want to know how things are panning out. What we can see in our observations and completions does not generally have causal consequences. Our observations, our completions, our snapshots, like the man on the print run in the print room who grabs a newspaper from the conveyor belt just to check that the printing is being done properly, that makes no difference to the print run. Unless, of course, he then stops the machine because it isn't working properly, which is, of course, exactly what we do when we express a preference through our conscious interventions, actively. But mostly, we are passive observers of this world, static, slaves almost, to the representations that come to us from a world that is essentially indifferent to that process. Let me remind you about non-destructive readings of books. We gain an impression of what the book means, we interpret it, and different people will interpret it in different ways, and if we know them, they may be influenced by our interpretation, but if they lie outside our life cone, Let's be clear, life cone, L-I-F-E, not light cone, as in relativity, our life cone, then our influence will never impinge upon them, so their readings will be independent. But the book, the book will remain the same in almost all respects with these non-destructive readings. And so it is with the world. What we glean from the world in our completions, our observations, our snapshots, when we try to find out how things are panning out, is not part of the causal sequence that dictates the patterns that the world follows.
My eldest daughter in her podcast Walk the Pod the other day made some references which I didn't agree with and don't like and she knows that but then we can disagree in a happy and friendly family way to people like tarot card readers and fortune tellers and she made the point which I can kind of agree with that even if you think the basis of their card reading is absurd uh, fraudulent in some cases It may nonetheless be the case, and I think her example was of the I Ching as well, it may nevertheless be the case that the people who are performing the readings of using whatever paraphernalia that they use as a sort of misdirection to make us think that it's about that when it isn't, whoever's performing the readings may, if they're good at it, and some people really are, may be having superior intuitions of what you might call what's really going on in us, in their clients, or maybe even in the world. So that somebody who had a... Well, I've got to be careful here because there's common misunderstanding of the the word, but if they have a prophetic gift, the ability to see a long way into the future, and not many people have, although lots of people pretend that they have, then it may be where it's genuine, rather than fraudulent, as it usually is, it may be that those people just have a natural intuition as to what's really going on at a deeper level. Not because they can project from what they see and that we all see into its likely or their likely consequences in the future. So when I read the cards, what I'm really doing is just using the cards as an excuse for indulging my capacity for intuiting something about the people for whom I'm doing the cards. Something that I could do anyway, but the cards provide me with a sort of excuse. They make it appear perhaps more authoritative than it would be if it just seemed like my opinion, my reading. And I suppose what we're really talking about is the kind of uh, kind of thing that we see in Sherlock Holmes with Conan Doyle's hero. Somebody walks into the room and he's able immediately to intuit things by observation about them. And if he were inclined to be a tarot card reader or a practiser of the I Ching or palmistry or whatever it might be, he might be able to use that skill that skill at reading people, you might be able to do that in order to tell them something about the future. Now, there is in quantum mechanics a celebrated puzzle, paradox, that was originally invented by Einstein and others about what's called entanglement. The notion that two particles that have a common ancestry could be so far apart, and yet, despite being further apart than could possibly involve or permit translation or communication between them, one is affected by what happens to the other. I'm not going to go into the detail. 
the puzzle, which appears to have been confirmed, in other words, it's not just a speculation, but it appears to be reality, the puzzle uh, was investigated by a French physicist called Aspe, Aspect, not quite sure how you're supposed to pronounce it, and confirmed it, that particles that are further apart then can possibly allow communication because it would need them to communicate faster than light, the speed of transmission to be faster than light. Those particles do nevertheless exhibit entanglement. And what I'm going to suggest is that it's got nothing to do with them communicating with one another across space. It actually has to do with a common ancestry. In other words, it's not horizontally causal any more than the relationship between the cue ball and the object ball in billiards is horizontally causal. It actually originates in the past. And the suggestion that then comes from that is that entanglement is everywhere and not merely as that exhibited between these two particular twin particles separated by great distances. The filling of the kettle and the making of the tea are also examples of entanglement. They are not causally linked at what we might call a horizontal level, in other words, the level of the leaves on the ends of the branches of the tree, but more deeply, at whatever level their common origins lie, just like the twin particles. And although you may say, but hold on, that would suggest that the thing was somehow affecting the past, going back in time. No, I don't think we need that. All we need do is to incorporate everything that is of material import in the example into the total package. In other words, when we think about the billiard balls, we don't just consider the cue ball and the object ball. We need to consider the cue ball and the object ball and the cue and the player and the bays and the table and the social conventions and habits and preferences that give rise to the idea that playing a game like billiards might be a good idea and then look at all of that in terms of a common origin, way back amongst the branches of the tree. That these things that I've just described are all the leaves, but they are not where to look for the causal connection between things. And that would be true again of the twin particles in the famous entanglement case. So I'm suggesting that the making of the tea and the intention to make the tea and the action of the person making the tea and all of those actions are like the leaves on the ends of the branches that we, in our nonchalant, superficial way, look to for the causal connections to explain what is going on when the real explanation lies somewhere quite different. So we have to understand things as a whole, which implies that when we remove the intentions of the player, the whole system changes. 
So no wonder you get different outcomes if the player's intentions are somehow eliminated from it or the intentions of the scientists performing the experiments that are intended to demonstrate the reality of entanglement. We can't separate aspects of, sorry, no pun intended, aspects of the whole experiment and isolate them. We have to treat it as a totality. It is not that the intention to brew tea or test entanglement reaches back and changes the past, but that both are already built into the present by their shared past as one among many possibilities that is realised, made definite, made complete and final by the decision to do this rather than that. The sequences of events we experience in the world and interpret as causal chains are more like the leaves at the end, here's a different analogy, of a parsing tree in a language where an integrated thought, the cat sat on the mat, comes out of our non-conscious brains in a way, of course, that we can't access because we can't access something non-verbally in that way as a lump, as a sudden uh, explosion of neurological activity, but we necessarily sequence it into a sentence where one word comes after the other. The cat, subject, sat, verb, on the mat, indirect object. So there's no more causality there We're not saying that those words cause one another. We're simply saying that they express something that the non-conscious brain has produced. So there's no more causality there than with the billiard balls or with making the tea. The appearance of sequence, the appearance of sequence is a mixture of necessity and illusion. For all that is happening owes its occurrence to something invisible that lies deep within the total process within which it occurs. Well, the obvious point that you're probably making and asking and maybe even shouting at the the phone or whatever you're playing this on is, do we then have no control at all over what's going on? Are we just slaves to processes over which we exert no influence? And the answer, I think, is largely that is exactly what we are, but not entirely. And here, let's go back to the print engineer who pulls a newspaper from the conveyor belt and looks at it and normally doesn't do anything because everything's going swimmingly. But in some instances, you'll say, whoops, We've got a problem here. We're running out of ink or whatever it might be, running out of yellow or blue or green. And they'll stop the print run. He will intervene because the snapshot that he takes tells him that it needs his intervention. Something needs to be changed. We do have conscious thoughts through which we express preferences that we can implement. But even they, even they, like the print engineer, 
like the intention to brew a pot of tea, are themselves consequences of earlier processes over which we similarly have very little control. The print engineer is there in the print room with the job which has been predetermined by his employment and a whole pattern of things going back decades and centuries in the print industry to do something like pulling a a copy from the conveyor belt and checking it. That's his job. But he then has the capacity to press the stop button is the only intervention of which he is really capable. But I think something, that I think something, is always, because my non-conscious brain has, and this is scare-quoted, thought it first, or had some process going on in it that has erupted into a conscious thought that I have probably made linear, like the cat sat on the mat, that I then appropriate as a thought and may decide but usually don't decide to act on. Most of the completions that we perform, most of the observations we perform, are entirely passive. They do not occasion any response in us at all. But occasionally, they do. If I suddenly see uh, an aircraft diving towards the garden and likely to land on my head, I'll do my best to get out of the way. But most of the time... I won't. So the thought may occasion action, but the action is not caused entirely by it, any more than the movement of the object ball is caused by the cue ball or the boiling of the kettle is caused by pressing the switch. They are all part of a nexus of events that include the player, the cue, the table and everything else including, as I've said, the social attitudes and values and interests that give rise to a game, like billiards, or the nutritional interests or the caffeine addictions that give rise to making a pot of tea. So we find ourselves understanding the specific from the general. Let me say that again because you'll see that it's thematic here. We find ourselves understanding the specific from the general, that to give a real explanation, not the kind that Leibniz wanted in terms of something simpler, but to give a real explanation in terms of something more all-encompassing and general, we need to understand the local out of the global, rather, as the Leibniz project suggests, the other way around. And I hope that the connection to the bits of Omega is clear. What we first encounter when we first calculate the 50th or the 48th bit is a completion, but it's not the underlying reality. It's not the real value of Omega's 48th bit. It's just the one we get as a first approximation. If we are ever to know what the true value is, that will come much later, if at all, as we represent the real value of the number for a particular universal Turing machine. So, sitting contemplating the garden gives me an impression 
just like that first encounter with the 48th bit, that this is what the future depends on because it creates an impression or it allows me to believe mistakenly that this is the way things really are when they're not. This is in large measure an illusion. It may be a comforting illusion. It may give me some sense, probably mistaken, of how things are panning out. It may be beautiful and reassuring. It may even be frightening and even terrifying, worrying and the cause of stress and anxiety. But the underlying reality, not the completion, not the observation, not the snapshot, not the thought, is what is driving future events, not this simulacrum. So when we sit and contemplate the world and see it as we believe it to be, we shouldn't then try to draw inferences about the future based upon what we see. We are deluding ourselves if we think that the future depends upon what we see because what we see isn't what's really driving things. What we see is neither the beginning nor even really much of a clue to the future of processes that are already in train. In other words, by the time we get round to observing things, other things are already going on that will have their way in our future, whether we like it or not. We may like to think that what we can see gives us some control. And in some instances, let's go back to the print engineer again, we can take a snapshot, we can pull a paper from the conveyor belt and look at it and say, whoops, something's going wrong here. Press the stop button and put it right. Just sometimes we can do that. But for the vast majority of our time, we can't. And partly we spend and indeed waste a lot of time trying to plan our futures based upon what we observe in the world, oblivious to the fact that what we observe in the world has got nothing to do with what is going on at an underlying level. We try to treat the leaves of the tree as what are the causally relevant elements when the real processes that should be of concern to us are much deeper. So what's certain is that the actions we take in response to the world as we see it through our completions, our observations, will either have no impact at all on the future or are as likely to have as negative a negative impact as they are to have a positive one because the initial conditions we are using to make our estimates of the future trajectories are ill-conceived, are snapshots and completions that are, in a manner of speaking, fraudulent. They make us feel better. They give us an illusion that we know what's going on, but we really don't. Nobody knows what is going on most of the time. Thank you for listening to episode 
200.